is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our weekly first job segment, where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans about their very first job. And today's story comes from our own Alex Cortez, about the life story of a guy he once met in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he went to college, and I went to law school at Mr. Jefferson School, the University of Virginia. By the way, a place where you can't quote Jefferson anymore, because it violates safe space rules and ordinances. And, of course, this gentleman's very first job played. Derwood Chase is a guy who knows how to work. He doesn't go on vacations. No time. He's building up his investment business. For 17 years, you remember, I worked 70 hours a week, and I brought my own lunch, so I'm here. You know, I'm not at lunch um, having fun with some client or prospect or something. I didn't know any better. I mean, I just wasn't very sociable, I guess. So Claude Jessup, who I'd, you know, I'd send him a sales letter or two or three, and and finally he calls me up. said, I've got a research project I think you might be interested in. Let's go to lunch. Well, I'm sitting here with this, my lunchbox, and I said, well... Gee, um, I already brought my sandwiches. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't think the guy was a billionaire, but let's say he was worth $100 million. And I'm telling him we can't go to lunch because I have my lunch, my sandwiches. That is so goddamn stupid. I can't even <laughs> believe it. But he was local, you know, and he dealt with bus drivers and so on and so forth. And he said, oh, well, Bring your sandwiches down here, and I'll send out for lunch. We can have lunch here right here in my office. And you don't run into that sort of businessman in, in New York, etc. Durwood eventually learned that he couldn't let a sandwich get in the way of getting a new client. But what to do about the sandwich in those cases? My wife thought if I was not going to eat my sandwiches that I ought to sell them to somebody, sell my lunch to somebody. This is my first wife, by the way. <laughs> but some of the people were going out, you know, getting a sandwich somewhere. And so I just remember saying, well, listen, I'm, I've been invited out to lunch or something rather. Um, go ahead and eat, eat my lunch. And uh, if you think it was worth anything, just, just put the coins in the box so I can give, give them to Marion when I get home. But, uh, you know, when you're first struggling and losing money with your first three clients or something or other <laughs> while you're trying to make ends meet. And where did Derwood learn to be thrifty and work hard? Like many folks, it was his very first job, working on a farm, his dad's farm. You know, whatever jobs there were on the farm, that's just, uh, just a gopher. I think in terms of the work ethic, I got that in spades. You know, my father had that idiom, you know, like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but that didn't keep him from raising me on an all work and no play track. (laughs) Derwood's father paid him one dollar for a whole day, and he said it was more than Derwood deserved. A dollar a day was big money. But the dollar was, you know, you could get a steak dinner for, I, I don't remember getting a steak dinner anywhere, but I think 
I think I heard people talking about getting a steak dinner for 25 cents or something, rather. And more than anything, working for his dad on the farm gave Durwood this. I had a lot of uh, dialogue with my father while I'm painting one side of the fence and he's painting the other. And sometimes I'm just handing him the tools when he was fixing the car or something rather, you know. But that, you know, was really a great relationship, even though it was work-related. Then, like all good things, it came to an end. I got into a nest of yellow jackets, and they are really mean when they sting you. After that, I told my father I was going to try to go to town and find a job. Durwood went to the nearby University of Virginia, my alma mater. Now at the big school, he asked his dad for a bigger allowance. When I went in to talk to my dad about an allowance, he said, well, son, if you get the tiniest part-time job, you'll be making much more money than I'm willing to give you as an allowance. So I'm discontinuing entirely. And that was really very helpful in terms of my part-time jobs in, in college. Necessity's the mother of invention, and I don't think I would have been anywhere near as open to working. He at first worked for free at the student newspaper, the Cavalier Daily, until... I was on the sports staff, and then because I just happened to be in the booth next to these guys that I had just seen in the Cavalier Daily office, and they had were talking about the checks that they'd gotten, and I overheard them, so I, I got up and asked them, uh, weren't you just the Cavalier Daily office? Yeah. Well, what, what is this about the checks? Oh, we're on the advertising staff, and they're paying you 10% commission on, on the ads that you bring in. And so I finished my walnut Sunday. I switched to hot fudge Sunday since then, by the way. But anyhow, I went right in and resigned from the sports staff and joined the advertising staff. Durwood would earn $3,000 in advertising commissions in a single year. That's over $27,000 today for part-time work while he was a student. It makes it seem easy, and getting some accounts were easy. But there were others like that Greek tavern owner who were not. I can remember sitting and waiting for damn near an hour. It taught him patience. Patience he'd need growing his investment firm. Can you imagine having a one-room office and having a retired person who'd been president and chairman of Emerson Electric come in? I don't know how I even talked him into coming down and even considering our services, but I could just see that guy looking from one corner of the ceiling to the other corner of the ceiling and thinking to himself, if this is all it is, this guy couldn't possibly be competent. (laughs) Thurwood Chase now manages more than $500 million for a select group of investors, only in America. Great job, Alex. Great story. Thurwood Chase, first jobs. This is Our American Story, and we love these jobs. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Post yours.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us. And it's Jory Larson now joins us, and she is, well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you, this time of dog owners treating their now-famous dog, Mishka, with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. I love Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it That's didn't go right. and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um an at home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps. You can do it in less than an hour. Um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be. Like any dog owner, um, you know, you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times. And of course, they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when they're yeah. uh, behaving like less than an Einstein. But um, the test actually it was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted. I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your, your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two-year-old Australian shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence, um, right up there with Border Collies. At least that's what Australian shepherd owners always kind of... Uh, Maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as Border Collies. Um, but, yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a, sign, you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not right. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your... You said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually... Um, I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when we got her when she was 10 weeks old. So we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. Right. So 
we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly, <laughs> they, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test <laughs> you did with, well, a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, uh-oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on, on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know there is zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start the stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's it involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end, and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank, far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with. Her, her muzzle alone, she has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew this time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this time. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. Right. And I will say, I think 
you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all, all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are, the, what are they doing to me? And this is, uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I'd love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog there anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home where, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Joey jo Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials. And playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages. You call me out. I can't hide anymore. I have no You can't see through Well, I love her, but I love to fish. I spend all day out on this lake, and hell is all I catch. But today she met me at the door, said I would have to choose. If I hit that fishing hole today, she'd be packing all her things and she be gone by noon Well I'm gonna miss her This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we love following people's passions as crazy as they may be and wherever they lead us and one of the great passions in life uh, is hunting and fishing and we love covering them Go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch Rediscovering My Old Man in the Sea 
remarkable story Keith Blanchard told about he and his father. His father had always wanted to go, well, fishing for Marlin, and he grew up on the Jersey Shore. His son had been introduced to fishing by his dad, and this was the son's way of paying back the dad. And what a story, what a tale. The Wall Street Journal captured it. Keith recorded it. And I was flying on American Airlines, as I often do, and I came up against a story called Wayne's World. And it was so damn good. And today we have the Grand Marshal of the Super Bowl of Fishing Tournaments joining us, Wayne Bisbee, and his Bisbee's Black and Blue Marlin Tournament in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. It is a three-day marlin fishing extravaganza with over 1,000 participants. It is the most expensive entry fee in sport fishing, costing 100000 per team and gives out over $4 million cash in prize money. Last year, the third prize paid out $2.5 million. Again, that's for third. And this year will be the 36th annual tournament. And joining us today again, Wayne of Wayne's World. <laughs> How are you, Lee? <laughs> hey, I'm great, Wayne. And look, this, what we love doing is following people's passions, and we love family affairs. And this all started with your father. Take us back to the beginning, Wayne. Well, it started back in early 80s, 81, 82, and uh, yes, it was by my father who, you know, as, as silly as it sounds, it was, I kind of, re- I try to portray it as it was, it was like uh, beer muscles on a local bar in Cabo San Lucas with uh, him and a few friends, you know, saying, I can fish better than you, no, you can't, and next thing you know, some money's on the bar, and they had their first tournament and mustered up $10,000 amongst six different boat owners. And that was the start of what is now, like you said, a, a fairly big ordeal every October down in Cabo. And this is back when Cabo wasn't exactly a hub for the celebrity crowd. Um, this Cabo was a little sleepy town at the time. And where was your dad from and how did he end up in Cabo, Wayne? Well, he had a business in Newport Beach, California. He had the fuel dock and the tackle store there on the water. And it was basically the first stop you would get to uh, when you came back from Cabo. Boats out there, they winter down in Cabo, and then they summer up in California and possibly Alaska. So, you know, they follow the fish. Yep. And so we were kind of the last stop, you know, oil changes, provisioning and getting tackle, et cetera, before they took off for, you know, six and seven months of the winter. And uh, and then we were their first stop when they got back. So it was kind of a, a, a supply line, if you would, for all of these West Coast boats that knew about Cabo. And like you said, back then, it was just a small group of Southern California boat owners that knew about it. And, you know, it's incredible fishing still is to this day. And, um, you know, it, it was the, the tournament was a marketing vehicle, if you would, for that, you know, tackle store and, and for the fuel dock. And it was an excuse, quite honestly, for my dad to get down there and have to have a reason of to be course, in Cabo. Of course. <laughs> and, and by the way, we'll take any excuse to go to Cabo, my wife and I as well. It is such a beautiful, beautiful place. So basically, Wayne, this starts as a couple of guys doing what they always do. They're drinking a little bit, they're having some fun, and they bet each other. And how many guys participate in that very first tournament? It was six different teams, uh, you know, comprised of maybe two or three buddies on each boat. So, you know, just a small handful. And like I said, they had $10,000 on the table. And as it turns out, my dad won it. And my older brother was his captain on the boat down there. My dad had a charter boat down there at the time. And so they won it. And that was the last time they could kind of fish their own tournament. Um, 
because it doesn't look real good when the organizers take the money, I suppose. So, you know, the you know word got out. Other guys had heard about it and said, hey, we want in on that. So they did a second one uh, that same year, and that one had 13 boats in it and $20,000. And it just kind of continued to grow like that. You know, it was never intended to be a business or a standalone entity at all. Right. It just got out of hand in a way, in a good way, Wayne. And, let, you know, one of the things I wanted to dig into a little bit here is describing for people who are not people who fish or if they just simply fish at their local lakes but don't know what a marlin is. I had a friend once describe catching a marlin as hooking onto a freight train with fins. And tell me what, what, what a marlin is, why they're, they're so, why this is like the mecca or the gold standard for so many uh, deep-sea fishermen. Uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. One, like you said, they're they're just big. I mean, they can. You know, your world records are in the fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred pound you know range, and they can be like you know, a freight train. Absolutely, they. You know, they've got different different aspects the way they fight. You know, tuna will typically go straight down and dog you the whole time, and it is like pulling up an anchor off the bottom, whereas a marlin can do that to you. Other times, he goes straight out horizontally, and and it's all you can do to keep up with them, and they're jumping all over the place, you know, so you've got that majestic old man of the sea element tied into the sheer physics of its size. Um, You know, and they also are very elusive. I mean, you can be out there and wishing all day long and not see one, you know, so it's just, I think it's a collection or a combination of, of lots of elements with marlin in particular versus other species of fishing. And do you remember your first time, Wayne, that first time you hooked one and caught one? I remember my first one I caught. Yeah, very well. In fact, that's why you'll ne- you never forget your first marlin. That's for sure. And how old but were you? Was, how old were you? I was what was I? I guess I was just turned 12. It was my first trip down to Cabo, in fact, back in the mid-70s. I guess I just aged myself. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, 12 years old and fished all day long, didn't see anything. And, uh, it, you know, on the way in, it was one of the last couple of lures to pull in. And son of a gun, about a mile outside of Cabo is where we hooked it up. So, you know, yeah. And could you have ever imagined, Wayne, that the people would be ponying up a hundred large, a hundred grand uh, to enter the tournament? I mean, in your wildest imagination? No, not at all. In fact, I go back. I can go back mentally over the decades of this tournament, and I remember my dad and I arguing. You know, he retired in 1990. And the tournament was just, I mean, we were getting entry checks mailed to us. And my dad, for all intents and purposes, the tournament was over. He had retired. And, (laughs) you know, it was one of those, well, we're getting entry checks. Well, you know, this isn't a standalone business. It's always been an expense, you know, for the business. And I don't have the business anymore, you know. And it was kind of a, well, listen, you know, me and my buddies and all that, we liked going down and helping out on this tournament. And we were in our 20s, and it's a lot of fun going to Cabo like it is today still. And uh, so, you know, he, 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 we, over the years we've fought over, well, we got to, what do you think about this jackpot adding? And, you know, the very first time we did a change, I thought my dad was nuts. He says, no, you know, it used to be a $5,000 base entry 
that was divided into 2,000 mandatory and 3,000 optional. Yep. And he wanted to combine the two and make them all mandatory. And I just thought he was nuts. You know, you can't ask for 5,000 huh. for sure. <laughs> well, Dad knew a little something that you didn't, and now you do. Wayne Bisbee of Bisbee's Black and Blue Marlin Tournament in Cabo San Lucas. We've learned about the dad and how this great, great tournament started. We're going to learn more about Wayne when we come back after these messages. This is Our American Stories. American Stories. We're talking to Wayne Bisbee of Bisbee's Black and Blue Marlin Tournament in Cabo San Lucas. And it has over 1,000 participants. Back when it started in 1988, it was just a well, concoction of Wayne's dad's imagination and a couple of buddies and about 20 guys go out into the, into the ocean and, well, six, of them, four, six teams started to bet. The next thing you know, well, all these years later, 100,000 per team, 1,000 participants. Hey, before we dig into your life story, Wayne, uh, last year's winners were from Canada. And ordinary guys just figure out how to get this done. This isn't rich people doing this. This is, this is ordinary people from, I, I assume, around the world. Last year's winner, winners were, were from Canada. Talk about them, Wayne. Yeah, they were some young guys, and they actually are regular working-class guys that had saved up for the last year or so before and uh, had always wanted to do it. It was kind of a bucket list, and they're too young for bucket lists, but decided they wanted to do it, and it was uh, it was their first marlin they had ever caught, period. Wow. And it just so happens they caught the right one. Well, and the winnings paid off their mortgages. Yeah, that, they won a few hundred grand, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about the, the $100,000 entry fees. The reality is you, that's optional money. You know, it's kind of like a slot machine. Yep. What you have to pay per boat is $5,000. That gets you in for roughly six, 700000 in prize money, where the extra couple, a few million come from are extra quarters in the slot machine. You bet. And those are everything from $500 per day. And there's three fishing days, so you have to multiply these numbers by three. But it's five hundred dollars a day, a thousand a day, two thousand a day, three thousand a day, five thousand, ten thousand, and even now a twenty thousand dollar per day jackpot. And uh, so those are all optional. You don't need to spend it. Um, and these guys got into the base, and I think they picked up one or two of the smaller jackpot entry levels. So realistically, they were in for you know ten thousand dollars amongst the whole you know group of them on the boat, and ended up walking with a few hundred large. That's great. And the tournament is it does more than just give out prize money, and it's enabled a lot of generosity as well. Give a couple of examples, Wayne. Oh gosh, that goes way back to starting with my dad's days, you know, and it, it's something that you know the community was small back then he was part of it or we were part of it you know we were just kids but uh you know 
We all grew up down there as a second home to us and everything from the, you know, up until the 90s. Gosh, the there wasn't a radio in that town that the policemen, you know, used that my dad didn't supply to the first ambulance in town my dad bought because there was no ambulance in town. Um, and it just goes on, you know. I mean, I give my dad a ton of credit for his heart's always been you know, to the other people first and him last kind of thing, all the way through family and us kids too. I mean, we never wanted for something, you know, and whether we could afford it or not, he had us on the front burner versus himself. And, uh, you know, it's just the kind of guy he is. I know it sounds kind of cliche-ish or whatever, but it's true. And, uh, you know, if there was a hurricane down there, he was the first guy running parts and running, you know, uh, uh, materials, whatever you you know, they needed down there, you yep. know, to to help them recover from the hurricanes and things. Well, you do so much more than Bisbee's Black and Blue Tournament, and I wanted to dig into this because I, I, my perception when I grew up near New York City was that hunters and fishermen were were were, were depleting resources. They weren't generous. There, you know, you had these memes in your head, and they were so far from the truth. I moved down to Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast now. And my goodness, I've discovered that the greatest conservationists I know are people who hunt. And they care more about wildlife and game than anybody who proclaims to. And, and this, was a, this was a revelation to me. Talk about your, your efforts in the conservation world and what, what, what drew you to that, Wayne? Oh, it was, I mean, a mental, yes, if you're going to play, you got to pay mentality kind of in its simplicity. But it's but it is a passion, you know. You, you know, you talked about passions on the intro there, and and that's exactly what it is. I mean, hunters and fishermen are the, are the by far, you know, ninety percent of the uh, uh, of the conservation efforts that go on in the in the world. I'll say are hunters and fishermen. They're the ones that realize, you know, that these animals have to have value in order to, you know, make protecting them you know, that much better. And, you know, over the years, you know, we just evolved. We've always been helping, you know, on the fisheries side, you know, from the early days. I mean, you know, financing um, socioeconomic studies for groups like the Billfish Foundation or the International Game Fish Association. And, uh, you know, through not luck, but just through happenstance, you know, four or five years ago, we were able to legitimize this a little bit bigger than what we had been doing in the past and created uh, a fish and wildlife conservation fund and our donors that donate to our charity are are you know by and large you know hunters and fishermen and you know it's enabled us to take what we've always done and organize it and do it kind of bigger better faster and um you know, it, it's, you know, from a personal side, it's a, it, it's kind of a new chapter of my life the last three or four or five years. And it, it's absolutely a fun way to wake up in the morning with, okay, what are we going to do that's good and positive And who can we give some money to that's going to do good things with it? You and uh, it's a neat way to wake up in the morning, that's for sure. And make the planet a better place. You know, I have a bunch of cousins who hunt, and they've been teaching my little girl how and when to shoot and how to do it properly, how to do it humanely, and then how to, how to plant trees. And, what, and, and she has fallen in love with nature in a way 
that I just couldn't have because I didn't understand nature, Wayne. I didn't understand much of anything. I just had uh, opinions and ideas. Last year, you wrote an article titled In Defense of Legal Hunting after the Cecil the Lion hunting incident. Talk about legal hunting as a means of conservation and what your group is doing specifically, Wayne. Give us an example or two. Okay. Well, you know, the, the I think the title or the subtitle of that article was Conservation Through Commerce. And the you know, the the raw reality of where where our planet's at or where we're at is that preservation no longer is an option. You you just flat out and, and us humans are probably eh, more than half at, at at fault for this. But the the way the world is right now you cannot preserve. I mean there you know, that word is it's one of those that on the surface, if you're not involved in it and don't understand and, and, and haven't spent time learning about conservation, it, it's one of those things that sounds awesome on the surface. But the reality is, is that conservation is where we're at with management. And it's oceans, it's land animals. We're to the point now where only so much of something can occupy so much space and you know on the on the human fault side it's as we expand our footprint on on the earth's surface uh something's got to give so that's where the management comes in and if you if you assign and have values to all of these different species somebody's in, got an incentive to make sure they're propagating better um, you know, you hate to use words like they're a commodity or you hate to treat it as such, but that's the reality. It's harsh. It's, it's where we live today. The, and the good thing about on the hunting side of it is that, you know, because of all of the, uh, because of the facts that I just said, you know, it has caused large areas of land to be used, you know, let's use South Africa because we've got a footprint ourselves in South Africa with an anti-rhino poaching uh, training academy where we train field rangers uh, to combat poaching down there. But in South Africa, you had large, vast areas of land now that are dedicated to increasing herd sizes of many, many species, in some cases endangered, definitely threatened species, because there's a value on them, and in this case, it's you know due to the hunters, uh, and it's much more a higher value than it would be you know where the first thing people say are let's do a photo safari. Well, a photo, photo safaris are great. I do them myself. I love photo safaris. You know, but the the reality of a photo safari is the financial impact is much less and not enough. Let's say as the hunting side of it is to keep villagers, you know, uh, with money in their pockets to buy food for their family. So if that doesn't happen, if there isn't enough of that, they go out and kill the animals anyway because they've got kids that are hungry. Yep, and, and you're providing incentives for very different conduct, and we know this about commerce. Commerce can, dis, can, can create new incentives, and the old incentives were for, were for depletion, frankly. And this is an answer, and Wayne, thanks for all you do. Uh, in this effort, and uh, it's you know it's axiomatic, and I think contradictory to some people, the words commerce and conservation. But your your work is proving that those two words actually, well, they work together. Thanks so much for all you do, Wayne. No, thank you. Yeah, what we're hoping is that we can get kind of a concerted message together through the outdoor industries because you know they need that message to be concise and correct. 
and uh, you know, and get the get it out there to okay. If, before you make your decision, let's get all the facts in your, in you know, available to you where you can where you can make an educated decision before you just say, wait a minute, hunters are killing all the animals. You bet, and and you're doing that. We're trying to do that with you, Wayne. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Wayne Bisbee of Bisbee's Black and Blue Marlin Tournament in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. If you've never been to Cabo, go. Bring your bride. Bring the family. It's a spectacular and beautiful place. And if you haven't, if you haven't fished for marlin, and I haven't, my goodness, it sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. This is Lee Habib again. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on This Day in History, a media star passed away. A man, though, that wasn't your typical media star. And yet he often bested the more traditional stars, winning an Emmy for Most Outstanding Television Personality in 1952 over other giants like Lucille Ball, Arthur Godfrey, Edward R. Murrow, and Jimmy Durante, and it was his very first year on television. This man graced the covers of Time and TV Guide and wrote 73 books in his spare time. What was so unusual about all of this? Well, this man was a priest, a Catholic priest. His name, Bishop Fulton Sheen, the venerable Bishop Fulton Sheen. This additional title reflects his present consideration sainthood. His television programs, Life is Worth Living, and later, the Fulton Sheen program, were the most watched religious programs in the history of television, drawing upwards of 30 million viewers a week, almost 20% of the American population. And for much of that time, he was going head-to-head and toe-to-toe with secular competitors Milton Berle and Frank Sinatra in the same time slot. Milton Berle, known as Mr. Television, quipped, that Fulton Sheen got the Emmy because, quote, he's got better writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're now going to bring you some of Fulton Sheen's best talks, and I promise you, you'll be yearning for more and for a clear voice like this in the media today. Let's first listen to Bishop Sheen at a family retreat he gave where he delivered 12 different talks to audiences of all ages. The first talk was titled, Wasting Your Life. Our world is really suffering from indifference. Indifference is apathy, not caring. I wonder maybe if our Lord does not suffer more from our indifference than he did from the crucifixion. There was a poet of World War I by the name of Studdard Kennedy who gave us a poem in which he compared our Lord coming to Calvary and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. And this is what he wrote. And when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. 
They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And so it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the street, then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. In other words, he found the cruelty of Calvary more acceptable than our indifference. And by the way, Sheen went on to say that the reason we're indifferent in life is because we don't truly love anything. For if we love something, we do anything for it, like we'll do for a new romantic love. Now let's hear from another talk Fulton Sheen gave at his family retreat that was titled The Devil. This part is on the contrasting appearances of the devil and Christ before we sin. First of all, how does our Lord appear before just before we sin, as when we are about to sin. Well, he appears as thou shalt not. He appears as the Lord on the cross. He bars the way. He says, my flesh was crucified, your flesh be crucified too. Go not this way. And so he stands in front of us. Oh, we're not free. We cannot do all we want to do. Christ is there. But how does Satan say or talk when we are about to sin? Oh, don't be sick. We don't believe those things anymore. Times have changed. Are you still a virgin? You mean you've never had a smoke of marijuana? Listen, everybody's doing it. Don't pay attention to those doctors who tell you that it'll hurt your brain cells. You've got to live. You have to be yourself. You haven't committed adultery? Everybody's doing it now. These views of strict morality were all right 100 years ago or 500 years ago. But this is a new world. I gotta be me, I gotta be free. That's the way the devil talks. He's on our side. Before we sin, Christ seems to be the accuser. Before we sin, 
The devil is our defender. He's on our side. The side of our sex, the side of our pride, the side of our greed. He takes our part. And after the break, we'll hear from Fulton Sheen about how the devil and Christ appear after we sin. You don't want to miss this. This day in history, Fulton Sheen died in 1979. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and we continue now with our story about Fulton Sheen, who died on this day in history in 1979. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And remember, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their great online curriculum and courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. Do not miss their C.S. Lewis course. It's just terrific. Well, we just heard from Fulton Sheen on how Christ and the devil appear before we sin. Christ as the guy standing in the way and the devil as our friend. But how do they appear after we sin? Sheen continues. After we sin, then the roles are reversed. Then Christ becomes the defender and the devil the accuser. And the devil will say, all right, now you've had your dope. Now you're hooked. Don't come to me, I can't help you. You might just as well give up. Sure, you've lost your virginity. Now what difference does it make? You might just as well go on. Sure, you've stolen. You haven't been caught, but you will be. Or you're about to be caught. And so the devil fills us with despair as he filled the heart of Judas with despair. Judas could have gone to the Savior. The Savior would have forgiven him. But Judas took a rope and walked frozen ground before the frosty trees and every knot in every tree seemed to him like an eye and every branch of every tree seemed to be an accusing finger traitor there was nothing for him to do in his despair but suicide And that is one of the reasons why suicide is on the increase in our civilization. Despair. 
the devil got us. In one of the novels of Dostoevsky, Raskolnikov, who was a very evil man, said to a girl whom he loved, he said, Sonia, do you know what's going to happen to you? You're either going to jump off a bridge or you're going mad or you will cut your throat. But that was not the way it happened. Because Sonia picked up the Gospel of John and she began reading the resurrection of Lazarus and she said, I can find new life in Christ. Which brings me to the way that our Lord acts after the sin. Now he is our defender. He said, come to me. All ye who labor. Come to me, all ye who labor. And we're now going to dive into one of Fulton Sheen's famous talks on communist Russia. This one from 1955. And it's just a remarkable analysis from a source you might not expect on geopolitical discussion. A priest. But as Fulton Sheen will show, all discussions are fundamentally spiritual ones. Now we're going to begin with a distinction. And the distinction is extremely important. We distinguish between Russia and communism. It must be remembered that the two are not the same. The Russians are people. Communism is an ideology. Only 3% of the population of Russia belong to the Communist Party. Did you know that? They have less than 7 million members. But there are two, over 200 million people in Russia, most of whom have hearts and souls, the same aspirations as our own. Russia was Christian for 1,000 years. It has been communist for only 37. Ideologies come and go. The people remain. Nazism has passed. The German people still remain. And furthermore, it must be remembered that in the last World War there were four million Soviet soldiers who defected, who abandoned the Russian army and went over to the West. They were not less Russian because they did that. They were just less communist. And furthermore, it must not be forgotten 
that the philosophy of communism is not Russian. Not at all Russian. The philosophy of communism came from the Western world, came principally from Germany. Whole ideology was constructed in Germany. It had its origin principally in three men, in Hegel, in Feuerbach, and in Karl Marx. Lenin, who introduced it into Russia, himself said that even the method of totalitarian war with which communism associates itself came from the Prussian general von Clausewitz. Communism, therefore, is not Russian bread. It can be something very alien to the Russian people. And I am speaking tonight in defense of the Russian people. As a matter of fact, it may interest you to know that, that every single priest in the world, every morning after low mass, says prayers for Russia, for the Russian people. To further illuminate this distinction, Sheen looks at two intellectual giants of the mid-1800s who lived in the same age but they held widely divergent views, Karl Marx and Fyodor Dostoevsky. And Sheen examines who was right about Russia, starting with Marx. According to Marx, the founder of communism, in any civilization there's the conflict of classes. There are those who own property, those who do not own property. There are the exploiters and the exploited. And after a while, a tension develops between these two. This tension produces a revolution, and out of the revolution comes communism. Now Marx held that this tension between capital and labor, between the property and those who do not own property, will occur in the most highly industrialized society. Because there the pull and the opposition and the class conflict is most intense. That was his philosophy. But as a matter of fact, communism did not start in the most highly industrialized civilization. It has never taken any roots here, and please God, it will not. It took place in the least industrialized of all countries. And not for the reason that Marx ever said, but simply because communism appealed to some of the deeper spiritual aspirations of the Russian people. Marx was wrong about Russia. And indeed he was, and the passion on this subject from Sheen is like, well, I think few others for the man. And after the break, we'll continue the venerable Bishop Fulton Sheen's remarkable talk on communism in Russia. He died on this day in history in 1979. This is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1979, Fulton Sheen died. When we left off, we were diving into one of Fulton Sheen's gripping talks on communism. This one, in 1955, where he compares the polar worldviews of two intellectual giants from the mid-1800s, Marx and Dostoevsky, and examines who was right about Russia a century later. We just heard Sheen shine a light on the fallacy of Marx's first principle. Here he is on Marx's second. Marx said that under communism there will be such abundance because under socialistic methods of production everybody will have as much as he wants. That he said, now this is an exact quotation from German ideology if you wish to look it up. Marx said in German ideology, under the socialistic method of production, the man in the morning can fish. In the afternoon, he can hunt. In the evening, he can breed cattle. And at night, he can criticize without ever being obliged to do one kind of work more than another. And then he continues that under this socialistic method of production, there will never be need of a state. The state will disappear. His exact words were, it will wither away. Now, as a matter of fact, in Russia today, People can't hunt. They're hunted. And they don't fish. They're poor fish. (laughs) And they don't criticize. They're criticized. And instead of, as Marx predicted, the state withering away, communism has developed in Russia into the most powerful totalitarian monolithic state in the world. Marx was wrong. About right. Oh, was he? And here is Fulton Sheen on Marx's third and final principle. He said religion is something that belongs to a capitalistic method of production. He said wherever you have private property, you have to have religion because religion will keep the poor workers enslaved. It promises pie in the sky. Then you have to have laws, moral laws, such as thou shalt not steal. That's to protect, protect private property, said Marx. But he said, where you have a socialistic method of production, there will be such tremendous abundance, no one would want to steal. You need never promise them another world because there'll be a paradise in this. And therefore, under communism, there will be no need of religion. And religion will completely disappear. That's what the man said. Now, Russia has been communistic for 36 years. There has not been any private property in Russia during 36, 37 years. And yet, religion is on the increase in Russia. There are more people today attending the Orthodox churches of Moscow than there are members of the Communist Party in Moscow. Marx himself was wrong again. Then Sheen transitioned to examining Dostoevsky's worldview and his first principle. He said, if you have no God, then you have no respect for man. And man will be persecuted. Where there is no God, then everything is allowable. And so he predicted, 40 years before World War I, think of it, 
that Europe was on the brink of a great catastrophe. And he said that men were arising in the world that would completely destroy all morality and all order. And these were his words. I should not be surprised if in the future there should suddenly arise some common-faced or rather cynical and sneering gentleman who with his arms akimbo will say to us, now then, you fellows, what about smashing all this order to bits, sending their logarithms to the devil, and living according to our own silly will? The annoying thing is that there would immediately be plenty of followers. Men are just like that. And Fulton Sheen concluded with Dostoevsky's second principle. Looking over the world, Dostoevsky said, liberty today means doing whatever you please. And he said this kind of false liberty is going to produce chaos. And in order to stop this chaos, he said you will have to have a forcible and compulsory organization of society. And he said because men have lost all sense of morality and decency, you will see millions of people in a future generation selling their freedom for a little bit of security. And so in Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky says, and see how this has come to pass in our day. He said the day is coming when men will say, there is no crime, there is no sin, there is no guilt. There is only hunger. And men will come fawning to our feet saying, make us slaves. Just give us bread. And then he speaks of the organization of society under communism and we shall persuade them that they will become free only by surrendering their freedom to us. And in their leisure hours, we shall make their life like a child's game with children's songs and innocent dance. We shall allow them to sin and then they will love us as children because we allow them to sin. We shall tell them whether they will marry or not marry, whether they will have children or not have children according to whether they have been obedient or disobedient to us and they will submit to us gladly and cheerfully. History, of course, had proven Dostoevsky right a whole century later when Sheen delivered this talk, and he's only more right today as the Soviet Union no longer exists and communism has diminished into a handful of pockets in the world. But the larger battle, well, it still rages on as societies tussle over where our rights come from, from government or from God, over whether God has a place in society at all, And what happens to societies in his absence? You can see the fingerprints of this battle everywhere, decades after Fulton Sheen's talk. So how did Fulton Sheen prepare all these talks? Well, if you watch the videos, you'll see he has no podium, no teleprompter, seemingly no aides at all. Our own Alex Cortez spoke with his niece, Joan Cunningham, on how Fulton Sheen delivered these tremendous orations. 
Well, I'll tell you, he never wrote out his talks. He always did. He always went to the chapel to prepare for a, a talk. He'd get a thought, and then he'd just sit there and he'd write out a little bit, just an outline, more or less. And but he didn't take it with him for the talk. The only time that he did anything was when he was on TV. He uh, had a prepared uh, closing because he knew he said he had to watch the clock. (laughs) And so he would have just a prepared thing that would be just that long. Fascinating. And you'd never know it watching it. And I submit, just go to Google, put in Fulton Sheen, relax. And there's not been one like him since, especially how he uses literature. And by the way, read Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov because they're spellbinding. And that's Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist. This is Lee Habib. This is our American story, the life of Fulton Sheen, who died on this day in history in 1979. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories for the hour. Bishop Fulton Sheen, who died on this day in history in 1979. And what we love to do on this show is bring you old things that still matter, rather than talk about new things that in only 60 days or six months won't matter. And this guy, well, he had hit television shows. Let's put it this way, so big were the television shows that 30 million viewers a week tuned in, almost 20% of the American population. This was a man who moved a nation. And by the way, did it at a time when the nation was looking for answers. This is post-World War II. 60 million people had died in a cataclysmic war. And people around this country and around the world were wondering, does God exist? And if he does, what kind of a merciful God allows such carnage to happen. And it's in this context that Sheen is competing for the hearts and souls and minds of millions upon millions of Americans. When Alex spoke with Fulton Sheen's niece, Joan Cunningham, they also talked about the fascinating process for being considered for sainthood. And one of the steps is proving that God used them as his instrument to perform a miracle here on earth. For Fulton Sheen... It happened after he died, and it involved a pregnant woman. She was having troubles, and uh, so the family was very religious, and they decided to pray to my uncle to that everything would turn out all right. Well, when she gave birth, the baby was dead, and it was dead for an hour, and they were ready to sign the death certificate. And all of a sudden, and they were all praying, praying, praying at the hospital, and the baby became alive. And it's, uh, it's fine. There's, it has no, you know, problem. It's four or five now, and uh, no problems with it. 
The mother, Bonnie Engstrom, told the media, quote, I remember sitting there on the floor saying Fulton Sheen's name over and over and over again. That was about as close to a prayer I could get. For 61 minutes, her son, James Fulton Engstrom, had no pulse and was medically dead. His medical professionals did their best but failed to resuscitate him. The only hope they had was to revive the infant long enough for his parents to hold him and say their brief hellos and goodbyes. When the doctors finally gave up and started to certify death, Bonnie said, quote, that's when his heart shot up to 148 beats per minute, just like any healthy newborn. The doctors told Bonnie that her son must have suffered severe organ damage from the oxygen deprivation and would certainly be severely disabled. Those predictions, however, never came to pass. Bishop Fulton Sheen believed that an avid pursuit of learning can help us on the path to God and doing his will here on this earth. And yet, there's also a danger of having too much of a specific type of knowledge and also of too little. If, for example, we have too little, well, then we become lowbrows. Now, a lowbrow, of course, does not develop himself. If we do not develop our muscles, our muscles begin to, to atrophy. And there is in us, there is in the universe, not only an evolution, but there's also a law of devolution. That is to say, we can not only go up, but we can also go back. A white fence does not always remain a white fence. Leave it alone and ceases to be white, it may even become a black fence. It has been established statistically, think of this, that 61% of the adults of the United States during the past year did not read a single book. Do you know how much time the average adult spends on television? He spends three hours and 20 minutes a week on TV. These same adults, 50% of these same adults that spent three hours and 20 minutes before TV, 50% of them had not read a magazine article during the year. 25% of college students had not read, not read a book the year after graduation. Something wrong with education when it does not inculcate a desire for learning. So just as there can be lowbrows, so over here you can have <coughs> eyebrows. His learning always exceeds his knowledge. Now, a highbrows knowledge is uh, generally due to over-specialization, or rather his knowledge tends to over-specialization. He concentrates on just one thing and interprets everything in terms of that one specialty. His knowledge is not universal. I heard of a, of a young man who had finished medicine. He went home to his father, who was a doctor in a small town, took care of all kinds of diseases, and the uh, young son doctor said to his father, he said, Dad, he said, you know, we learned in medical school that this is an age of specialization. 
And he said, you get nowhere today unless you specialize in something, and I've decided to specialize in the nose. And the father said, which nostril? <laughs> uh, Darwin confessed to the ill effects of specialization. He said, I've spent my life in one specialty of science, and he said, I'm very sorry to say now that at the end of my days, I've lost all appreciation for poetry and art and good literature, which I enjoyed when I was young and in the university. And one of the, one of the uh, ill effects of, uh, of becoming a highbrow, and this is another mark of him, is he has no use for the common people. That's when knowledge begins to spoil you. When you've lost touch with the common man. And here's Bishop Fulton Sheen concluding one of his talks, and in it you'll hear his humor, his lightness, and his ability to relate to all people that made him such a sensation. Now my time is up. Oh, yes. Listen, my good, my good people, it's always better for you to say, I wished he had talked longer than to have you say he had three good chances to quit. I hope now that you'll carry away from this talk two lessons. First of all, I hope the women will become interested in football. That'll help, won't it? And secondly, be generous with yourself. Just give, give, give. And as we give, we get. This is the gospel lesson. As we pour out ourselves, God gives us strength. Now, for example, we know... Let me tell you, when I came over here, I was dead tired. I didn't want to talk. I didn't feel like it. So I said to the good Lord, I'm tired now, and I'm going to talk on using strength. Spend yourself. Give me strength. Do I look tired? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, now, everybody be generous. Generous with self. I know that when I go now, that Monsignor is going to talk about being generous in other ways. <laughs> but I mean being generous with yourself, your energy, your kindness to others, your charity, your helpfulness, because then you will be real Christians. This friend of mine that I told you, who was in the prison for 14 years, when he got out of prison, in Romania, he was walking along the street and found a boy, and he said, Do you believe in Christ? And the boy said, No. Why don't you? The little boy says, You think Christ is God, don't you? Well, now, if Christ is God, if Jesus is God, he can do what God does. God made flowers. Flowers made other flowers. God made elephants, elephants made other elephants. And nobody's ever given me anything. And if Jesus is God, then he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. But I've never found another Jesus. My father's an alcoholic. My mother takes in washing to live. Nobody's ever given me a toy or a suit of clothes. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus is God. 
because he never made any other Jesus. And Dr. Wormbrand said, but isn't your pastor? Well, no, he said, he's not, he's not. When this pastor was told, I, he said, oh, that boy is silly. He wasn't silly, he was right. So if Jesus is God, he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. That's what you are, other Jesuses. And you ought to so manifest him in your lives that as you move among others, they will say of you as the maidservant said of Peter, thou hast been with Christ. Thank you, and God love you. And what a beautiful close to a remarkable life this hour. We celebrate the life of Bishop Fulton Sheen, looking straight at sainthood. He died on this day in history in 1979. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. 